in any region. Once the economy tanks, the local watering hole becomes the proverbial water cooler for anyone pulling in an unemployment check. Apparently, happy hour at the buckboard was any old time of day. I promptly found the bathroom and peeled my feet from my shoes, washing them as best I could in the sink, then scraping as much of the mud from them as possible. I'd left Carla in the bar to look for Stanley. When I returned, I saw she'd found him, exactly where the worker said he'd be, standing at the bar, hunched over a bowl of shelled nuts. He'd put one between his teeth, cracked the shell, suck out the peanuts, and toss the carcasses over his shoulder onto the floor, which, by the looks of it, was exactly the appropriate etiquette for this particular establishment. Peanut shells littered parquet floor, mounted deer heads lined the walls, and an old jukebox nattered in the corner over a boisterous din of conversation. The dark blue work shirt with Stanley monogrammed over the pocket gave him away. It appeared he'd been there a while, based on how many times he missed his mouth and peanuts bounced off the bar and onto the floor. I looked at my watch, 12.52 in the afternoon. He had me beat by a long shot. Tall and lean aside from the beer gut, with hard creases around his otherwise oddly youthful face, his story was written all over it. Stanley Wayngrove was the epitome of everybody's All-American. His stats had peaked at homecoming. He took his queen to the prom and never imagined just two weeks later he'd blow his knee along with every hope and dream upon which he'd hung his jersey. Eventually his queen shuffled off to another court and Stanley was left staring down the barrel of the same life his father had lived, working in a factory, assembling cars from parts made everywhere but the good old U.S. of A. Hey. Are you Stanley Wangrove? Carla asked, taking the stool beside him. Who's asking? He looked her over with an appreciative eye. The name's Carla. I work with Detective Morneau over there. She pointed at me where I sat two stools down, a glass of shitty scotch already in my hand, and a beer sweating nearby. He leaned back and waved amiably at me, then checked out Carla's ass before leaning back in and giving her his full attention. What can I do for you? I'd like to ask you a couple questions about Crystal Bell. Stanley nodded, taking a long pull from his beer. Was wondering how long it would take. Sally said she had to go into the station this morning and answer questions. We're not cops. Morneau over there, he's a private detective, and I'm his assistant. We've been hired by the family. To look into Crystal's murder. Shame. Crystal was a nice enough gal. Bit on the frigid side till you got her warmed up. He wiggled his eyebrows up and down lasciviously. A complete parody of an idiot. When he ran a finger up Carla's bare arm, I developed an instant dislike for the parody in question. I don't generally like making rash emotional judgments because I tend to function irrationally in such cases. So I downed the scotch and decided against tossing the glass at his head, for now. Oh really? Did you have a relationship with Ms. Bell? Nah, we hooked up a couple of times, nothing much, 
Sally caught wind of it, and that was it. He wiped his dry hands together and held them up. The boss says saddle up. You saddle up and tuck in your spurs. I could feel it in the air. A slow boil of irritation wafting off Stanley. Even though he'd shoved it way back behind an ineffective leer, Stanley was blue-red, lively, easily bored, hasty, and not very loyal. So you're telling us that Sally knew that you had an affair with Crystal? Eh, it wasn't an affair, really. I took Crystal home a few times after work, when Sally had to go in for the early shift at the diner. We have what you call an open relationship, me and Sally. A don't ask, don't tell sort of thing. Know what I mean? Carla favored him with one eyebrow at half-mast. No, I can't say that I do. Why don't you explain it to me, Stanley? There was a brief lull in the conversation during which time Stanley motioned to the bartender for another beer, then asked Carla if she wanted one. When she shook her head no, he leaned back and looked at me as I emptied my beer. How about you, detective? It's on me. Stanley yelled down to me. I didn't look at him, but told the bartender, Scotch, make it a double if it's on him. The bartender poured the drink and slid it to me. I picked it up and swallowed it in one gulp. I felt Stanley watching me, sizing up the situation before he turned to Carla and picked up right where they'd left off. That told me he'd consumed just enough to feel smarter than he actually was. Blue Reds weren't generally that smart. Just what I said. She don't ask, I don't tell. Works the same for her. Carla nodded and flicked her gaze in my direction. I rested my chin on my hand and smiled. That last drink having pulled me up over the hump. I was even rethinking the idea of tossing the glass at Stanley. It suddenly felt like a possibility. I had a weird feeling Carla could read all that from my lazy expression. Did you kill Crystal? Carla asked, loud enough that a handful of bar patrons turned to stare in their direction. Stanley choked on a sip of beer. Damn, lady! Seriously! Hell no! I didn't kill Crystal. Christ! I've been down here busting my hump for two weeks. I barely get home on the weekends. Hmm, it's funny you should mention that. We just came from your work site. I noticed a lot of non-English-speaking people in that group. That's when his mood shifted, the light yellow of cowardice intertwined with the dark orange of suspicion. He took another sip of his beer, one hand flat on the bar, then set the bottle down and said calmly, And? Before she could answer, Stanley leaned into her personal space, fingered the candy necklace, pulled it to his lips, bit off a piece and let it go as Carla's upper lip furled in disgust. I wrapped my hand around the empty glass and lifted it from the bar getting a feel for its weight. Carla put a hand on his chest and pushed him away from her. That job's over, Stan. You can wave goodbye to the big bucks. Your workers are all headed out and the cops are probably there by now. His eyes narrowed to slits. What the hell are you talking about? Well, maybe you'd know that, Stan, if you were actually at the site. Instead of drinking your day away while a bunch of other guys work to put money in your pocket. Carla turned around and addressed the bar full of mostly middle-aged men. Hey, can I get a quick show of hands? How many of you guys are looking for work? The men exchanged confused looks and started slowly raising their hands. I chugged down the beer in case the melee, I assumed was on the horizon, started before I had time to finish it. 
Carla smiled. Maybe one of you guys might want to ask Mr. Wangrove here why he hired about a hundred illegal Mexican workers to clean up an oil spill right around the corner. I bet some of you could have used that 800 bucks a week they were pulling in. A disquieting hum rumbled through the bar as Carla hopped off her stool and headed toward me. Wingrove lurched forward, grabbing her upper arm. By the time I reached him, she'd delivered an elbow jab to Stanley's stomach that doubled the former football player over instantly. She pivoted around and grabbed him between the legs. Stanley dropped to one knee. With the disparity in their heights, his six foot plus to her five, she only had to bend over a couple inches, never disengaging her grip. Carla hissed in his ear. Let me give you a piece of advice, cowboy. Never put your hands on a woman unless you are confident that she's waving you in. Three or four bar patrons jumped to their feet, but by then Carla had it under control. She gave him a ball-busting squeeze before shoving Stanley to the floor, walking past him and out of the bar. When he tried to get up, I put a foot on his shoulder and gently nudged him back down. Stan, play dead. She isn't all that pleased with me today either, but if you're thinking about retaliation, I'll be forced to defend her honor, such as it is. Then it'll be the two of us swinging at each other for no other reason than our pride demands it. While these folks might find it mildly amusing, I'm just not up to it today. I left Stanley Wangrove to the restless natives and headed outside. Carla was waiting in the driver's seat of my idling car, staring straight ahead. I walked around the back of the vehicle so she wouldn't be privy to my liquid gait, surrendering to the stage created by the frame of the windshield. I slid in, slammed the door, and was still trying to figure out the intricacies of the seat belt when she pulled to a stop at the first red light. She yanked it from my hand and plugged the tongue into the buckle with a loud metallic click. This sent me into a low rumbling chuckle that quickly devolved into a coughing jag. God, you're an idiot. And you're perturbed, little lady. I dispensed with the hacking, then fumbled for my cigars, but Carla quickly batted them out of my hand. They tumbled to the floorboard at my feet. I gave it about 12 seconds of thought, combined with a waist-up forward rock, but eventually realized the effort required wasn't worth it. I felt around on the side of my seat, finally finding the latch and reclining back to a prone position. Interesting. You left me in there with Stanley like that. Pretty sure he could have taken me, given a sec to catch his breath. I didn't know better. I might think you don't care. I turned my head lazily toward Carla and smiled, a big shit-eating grin. When she cut her eyes in my direction and saw me all goofy-faced and smiling, she ran a red light. The incessant horn bleeding from the car she cut off tugged her attention back to the road. God damn it, Morneau! I clicked on the CD player. The music assaulted the car at maximum volume. I sang along as she headed for the highway. Of constant sorrow. I fell asleep somewhere along the way, but her question tugged me awake. How did you find out? 
I put my seat in the upright position and ran a hand through my hair. We were about a half hour outside of Detroit. Found a business card from the daycare at your place. Carla shook her head slowly, but didn't say anything, so I continued. The rest was pretty easy. Googled Lucy Rios and found your old Facebook profile. Fucking Facebook. Do you know how hard they make it to delete your account? I had no idea, but I nodded anyway. He's not coming back, Morneau. This isn't some bullshit Lifetime TV for Women movie where I'm walking down the street with my bag of self-help books. He jumps out and grabs me, bent on revenge. He has nothing to avenge. He's gone. Probably to a country that doesn't extradite. Somewhere that specializes in dark women and dark beer. He was always partial to both. Who are you trying to convince? You or me? You changed your name and moved away. You must have thought he might try to find you at some point. I didn't want to be Lucy Rios anymore. I didn't want to hear that name. I have to remember. I didn't want to live someplace where everybody knew. And I didn't want to talk to any of those people ever again. Not the manager where I bought my groceries. Not my mailman. Not the guy that changed my fucking oil. I couldn't walk down the street without running into somebody who looked at me like I was broken. I know that I'm broken. I don't need to be reminded of it every fucking time someone looks at me. She turned and shot me a warning look, and I nodded. What about family? I asked. Carla waved the question away, frustrated. My dad died about six months be before it happened, and I was never close to my mom. She know where you are? No. Nobody does. Just you. How'd you end up in Detroit? She croaked out a forced laugh. You. After what happened, those stupid books were all that I had left. Nothing in my life was the same, Morneau. Nothing but those goddamn books that I'd been reading before... Everything... Before everything died. Somewhere along the line I got fixated on you. I started to wonder why you hadn't written another book after that last one. Kept me from... Going under. I found your business website when I was researching you one night and... When I decided to get out of there it just seemed like the only place to go. I know it doesn't make sense. I mean, it does and it doesn't, but... I'm here and it is what it is. And now I'm just trying to work with what I got, okay? I sighed and tried to think of something to say. I'm not qualified for comfort. I'm the last person anyone should call when seeking relief in any form. In this case, I felt I owed her. But it took a long time to come up with something I hoped would console her. In the end, I think it accomplished just the opposite. I regretted it as soon as it came out of my mouth. You're not alone, Carla. She looked over at me like she appreciated the gesture, even though we both knew it was a lie. 
There's a difference between being alone and lonely. I don't mind being alone. I like it, actually. But loneliness... It sinks in its teeth and it leaves you with nothing but hard edges and splinters. Everyone around you ends up getting cut. It's easier being alone. It took a minute to realize she was talking about herself, not me. She understood that two broken people can't come together to make a whole any more than splintered pieces of a chair can miraculously regenerate into a couch. The kindest thing broken people can do for one another is avoid stepping on each other's cracks. So that's what we did. Sometime during that car ride, we made an unspoken but implicit agreement. Then we got on with the business of figuring out who killed Crystal Bell. The Wayne Groves lived in a blue double-wide, 15 minutes outside of the city of Detroit, on 40 acres of farmland that hadn't been farmed in some time. A square around the home was mowed tidily, but anything past that would need a bush hog to get through. An old cement grain silo jutted from behind a dilapidated barn that was rotted out on one side and attached to a pen with five healthy pigs lounging in the shade of a nearby tree. Chickens roamed freely along the path, mowed from the house to the barn, from the barn to the chicken coop, and from the coop back to the house. Everywhere else, the grass rose to hip level and was dotted with daisies and wild mustard weed. I pulled down the long gravel driveway and parked closer to the barn so I could get a good look around the property as we walked to the house. As we passed the barn, I noticed it had been gutted and was now the parking garage for a Bayliner trophy with a cuddy cabin. Nice boat for freshwater fishing, an older model, but on closer inspection, I noticed the trailer had new tires. The boat was equipped with a Garmin fish finder, GPS, ship-to-shore radio, and the Evinrude motor looked new. The empty boxes for the fish finder and radio were stacked in a corner of the barn next to a garbage bin full of empty cans. Looked like Stanley had been spending some money recently. Nice boat, Carla said as I turned to see Sally leaning out of the front door, balanced on one foot. She wore skin-tight black leggings, a black tank top, and white sneakers that matched the white sliver of stomach peeking from between the waistband and top. I told you all Stanley isn't here. He's still up in Kalamazoo, Sally said. We just came from there, Sally. I'm guessing he'll be home pretty soon. Unless he's still drinking at the bar. His work site has been closed down. Carla obviously couldn't resist needling the woman. What for? Sally asked, holding her hands out and away from her. I took a couple steps up onto the porch. It was sturdily constructed with knotty pine and ran half the length of the trailer. A set of plastic chairs sat around a table with a green umbrella next to a barbecue grill. They had a bunch of illegal workers up there. Mind if we ask you a few questions? What about? Sally brushed the hair off her forehead with the back of her arm. She had her back up against the door to keep it from closing. I don't know anything about that work site. 
Carla casually leaned against the porch railing. All right, well, what do you know about Stanley screwing around with Crystal Bell? A look passed over Sally's face. An incendiary violet flash that she quickly got under control by appearing to be bored with the question. Come on in, I'm making dinner. She held the door open with her elbow and eyed Carla as she entered the trailer. A large flat screen television overwhelmed one wall, directly across from a worn looking couch where a man who appeared to be in his thirties sat watching Tom and Jerry and eating cereal. Sally scoffed as she passed behind him on the way to the kitchen. Riley, did you go get that while I was outside? I told you not to eat anything. I don't know why the hell I bother cooking if you're going to eat Fruit Loops all day. She turned to speak to me over her shoulder. That's my son, Riley, from my first husband. He moved out here a couple of months ago from Lansing. Couldn't find no work. I told him it ain't any better here. With a mouthful of cereal and a drop of milk hanging from his chin, Riley nodded a greeting, then turned back to the television. He had greasy brown hair and large bulging eyes. Carla parked herself in a kitchen chair. Sally headed over to the counter and started pounding a mound of meat into a ball. She motioned with an elbow for me to sit down at the kitchen table. I took the chair opposite Carla. Y'all want something to drink? You'll have to get it. She nodded toward the fridge. We're fine. Thanks. Sally looked at Carla for a bit too long, then at me. She always answer for you? Only for the last few weeks, I replied, shooting a warning look at Carla. Sally tossed a large ball of meat into a baking dish and proceeded to slather it with an unappetizing mixture of Worcestershire sauce, ketchup, mustard, and relish. So what did y'all want to ask me? Sally sighed as if we were wasting her time. Your husband and Crystal, Carla said, leaning back in her chair and crossing one leg over the other. When we talked to him today, he implied that you didn't care about it. I slid my foot under the table against hers to get Carla's attention, but she wouldn't look at me. She was determined to question the woman herself, and it occurred to me that a little bit of tension between us might work to our advantage. I got up, opened the refrigerator, pulled out a beer, uncapped it, and then took a long swig as I sat back down. Sally winked at me and tossed the spoon she'd been using into the sink with a clatter. Stanley knows he can do what he wants, just like I can. She washed her hands, then foraged in the cabinet to retrieve a box of aluminum foil, ripped off a piece, and tented it over the meatloaf. In the living room, Riley laughed loudly at something on the television. Sally, I'm just going to level with you because we don't have time for this bullshit. Crystal was about to blow the lid off the whole illegal immigrant thing down at the work site. She had pictures. She was talking to a reporter. So aside from the guy in the hospital bed, you and Stanley had the most to gain from Crystal's death. Sally swiveled around with the dish in her hands and looked at Carla. Honey, you must watch a lot of that CSI, don't you? Sally looked at me and conspiratorially chuckled because I was chuckling. Carla was not amused. She was simmering to a boil as she said, Just out of curiosity, Sally, how'd you find out about Crystal's death? When we talked to you down at the diner, that was only a couple hours after the body had been found. Sally tilted her head like she was trying to remember. She put the dish on the counter, 
bin took an inordinate amount of time pulling a cigarette from her pack, tamping it down on the table, then lighting it. She fiddled with her Betty Boop lighter, holding it between her thumb and middle finger, flicking the wheel with her fingernail. It made a little clicking sound. Oh, I saw it on the news. We got a TV in the kitchen at the diner. Those cooks always have it on. Must have been watching the news that day. Must have? Well, sure. They must have if that's where I saw it. Sally smiled as she set her cigarette in an ashtray and slid the baking dish into the oven, slamming it closed. You're cute, Rosebud. I like you. But if you think me or Stanley killed Crystal, you're a jelly bean shy of a full jar. Know what I mean? No, I don't know, Sally. Carla cut her eyes from Sally to me. Morneau, do jelly beans come in a jar? Because if they don't, that little metaphor doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense, does it? I took a long sip from the beer and then set it down. I have no idea, ladies. I don't eat jelly beans. Can I use your bathroom, Sally? Carla asked, glaring at me. Sure, hun. Down the hall on the right. Sally pointed to a hallway on the other side of the living room, then picked up her cigarette and took a long drag. Carla tossed off a little smile at Riley as she headed to the bathroom. Morno, your secretary's cute. I might even have a little thing for her if she wasn't such a bitch. While she pulled a beer out of the refrigerator, something on the counter caught my eye. She's all right, I said, standing up and moving closer to get a better look. I guess we'll leave you to it then. Sorry about the whole job thing. Looks like Stanley will be back on night duty with you. He'll figure something out. He always does. Sally swiveled away from the refrigerator and directly into me. You're not half bad yourself, Morneau. Right about that time, Carla walked out of the bathroom. She looked at us for a minute, standing there, chest to chest. You about ready? I stared down at Sally, who didn't appear to be in a hurry to put any distance between us. I backed up a few steps and said, Yep. We'd barely driven to the end of the driveway when Carla reached under her shirt and pulled out a fistful of something long wrapped in toilet paper. What do you got there, Columbo? Toothbrushes. If you're planning on using those things, I'd boil them first. Don't be stupid, Morneau. We can give them to Lash for DNA testing. I had to take all three of them because I didn't know whose was whose. I see. I probably shouldn't have been enjoying the recent turn of events as much as I was. Now we can find out which one of them did it, because I know it was one of them. I'm leaning towards Sally, though, just because she's such a bitch. Interesting. She said the same thing about you. I looked over at her. Carla, I appreciate your crack investigative efforts, but Lash isn't going to take a toothbrush from you and test it. There's this pesky little thing called chain of evidence. He couldn't use anything he got from those toothbrushes in court if he wanted to. Now get rid of those things. Wait, we took that hard drive. Wasn't that against the pesky little evidence rule? Yes, but that's something that can easily be checked. Do you have some sort of DNA testing lab at your house that I don't know about? Lash has to send that stuff out. He'll get it if he needs it, eventually. But these cops are working at a handicap. In 2008... Detroit's crime lab was closed down after a scandal involving evidence evaluation. A 10% error rate for ballistics. It was a real mess. 
Months later, they find a bunch of stuff. Live ammunition, blood samples, and reports with victims' social security numbers in an abandoned school building. They were using it for storage. It was all supposed to have been boxed up and stored properly. Now, everything from blood, hair, gun residue, and other trace material has to be sent out. Three years later, and we still don't have a crime lab. The cops are at the mercy of the Michigan State Police forensic technicians who are already backlogged. Last I heard, there were over a thousand rape kits still sitting around, not tested. Carla was horrified. How do cases ever get solved? Good old-fashioned police work. Ask the right questions. Keep digging. It's not like they can't get evidence evaluated. It just takes a lot longer. They do prints locally. But even with the AFIS database, the system spits out a bunch of possible matches and an actual technician has to make the decision. Figure roughly 500 prints submitted on an average day in Detroit, and you can see how a department with dwindling resources would get behind and stay there. Carla looked crushed as she slung the toothbrushes out the window. In the rearview mirror, I watched the toilet paper around them begin to unfurl as they bounced off the ground. But I do have some good news. Oh yeah? You finally decided to take me to bed or lose me forever? No. While you were absconding with the toothbrushes, I noticed the knife block in the kitchen had an empty slot. The style had a flat haft and looked a lot like the one that was sticking out of Crystal Bell's neck. 